was in second grade, and I remember there was uh, going to be a handwriting quiz the next day. And so I remember spreading my yellow worksheet pages onto the wooden dining room table and furiously trying to write a cursive R, especially off the beat. That was really tricky. So there I was, same size head, <laughs> eight-year-old body, also true. I marshmallow on a pretzel stick. That's true. Um, carving lines so hard through the paper that it dug into the wooden table, trying to write the word broom over and over and over again. And my parents saw the look of determination that quickly moved into distress, and they intervened. They said, my dad said, look, said, I'm going to take you early tomorrow. You're going to go to the teacher, and you're going to learn how to write this person art that's killing you right now. And so I said, yes, dad, and went to sleep, and I woke up, and uh, I can still remember the quiet car ride to school, the soft background murmur of NPR, <laughs> the, the creaking leather seats, the sometimes jarring sound of the turn signal, and my dad's quiet profile. Uh, he might have dropped me off with a word of encouragement. I can't quite remember exactly how it went down. But uh, he dropped me off, and I made my way to my second grade teacher, Mrs. Harmon's room, and found my little table uh, where I sit kind of closer to the back, and I stealthily got out my Dixon Ticonderoga pencil and made unblinking eye contact with my yellow worksheet and sat and tried and failed to write the word broom over and over and over again. Um, the cursive went about it as desperately as it did the night before, sadly. And so Mrs. Harmon soon tuned into my distress. I mean, she couldn't help but hear the groans. She couldn't help but feel the shaking of the room with my erasing. It was furious. Um, and then she saw the uh, billboard size distress of my overly large head. <laughs> and so she swung into action. So just minutes before school started, just uh, minutes before that first thing, cursive quiz that we had to take, Mrs. Harmon came over. She knelt beside me. And without a word, she grabbed my hand. And she began steadily to hold my hand and trace the cursive bar over After that moment, um, right now, looking back, I can't quite remember uh, if I passed the quiz or even really taken the quiz. <laughs> that second grade scene uh, makes me think of a question for all of us tonight. If, if I were to read through all of your teacher comments from elementary school to now, what phrase would I see repeated over and over again? <laughs> uh, is it a string of compliments like the same adjectives, sweet or diligent, over and over again? Is it like, uh, or is there something buried in the middle of the superlatives and is just like kind of stuck in there? Uh, some sort of cons uh, some sort of consistent constructive criticism that's given over and over and over again, right? Is there kind of refrain that's been spoken over your life? Uh, as my agony with the cursive R proves, uh, I had a lot of teacher comments that constantly were the same phrase. Struggles to ask for help. Struggles to ask for help. Uh, I had one science teacher put bluntly, she said, refuses to ask for help. <laughs> Thank you, Mrs. Corrigan. Okay, so, and there's a sense in which I haven't really changed. When I look at this passage, uh, Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, I immediately skip down to verse 9. <laughs> and I identify with Othniel. Right? I want to be like Othniel. I want to deliver other people. I want to swoop in a blaze of mighty glory take out some guy from Mesopotamia, and then rest on rest for 40 years on one achievement. That's what I want in my life. 
But in order to be like Ahmael, I actually had to enter the story as Israel in verses 7 through 8. I have to face my spiritual forgetfulness. I have to face my self-sufficiency. I have to face my neediness. And in that posture, I need to cross the Lord for help, even for rest. But this is really difficult in a place like this, isn't it? Because we're actually so good at being Ahmael. I mean, we like and even excel at solving problems, especially other people's problems. We love helping other people in need. Every year, we come in thinking, this year, I'm going to do all the assigned work. Right? Every reading, every problem set, I'm going to carry the one every time. I'm going to run the table, and I'm going to do the impossible at the University of College. I'm going to do well academically, I'm going to have a social life, and I'm going to sleep. <laughs> Okay? Or if you're a first year, maybe you're two weeks into becoming a better version of the high school you. Right? More friendly, better time management, more shareable on social media life experiences. I came to Davidson, first as a student and now as a campus minister, and you came to Davidson to do sustainable good for the world. And I'm so for that. That is so great. Okay? I'm not going to be a dream killer. Okay, no, that's not what I'm trying to do, I promise. But simply put, Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 are telling us to be better, to be more like Othmael. We need to first let ourselves be loved as we are, to identify with Israel. Okay, so in order to be better, to be more like Othmael, we have to allow ourselves to be loved as we are, to identify as Israel. And really, those are the two main points that we have, the two sides of that truth. First, we're going to look at verses 7 through 9 and what it means to enter this story as Israel. What does it mean to let God love us as we are? Okay? And then second, in verses 9 through 11, we're going to look at what it means to enter this story as Othmael. And what does it mean to be better with proper power and proper perspective? You can find those outlined points on the bottom of your handout. Uh, we'll be going through those together. So let's begin where the passage begins, right? Verses 7 through 9. And we're going to look with Israel at what it means to be loved as we are. Look with me at verse 7. And there we read, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Okay? On our first reading, it feels pretty difficult to enter the scene uh, with Israel, let alone as Israel. Okay? But thankfully, first impressions don't have to be binding. So if you forgot that person's name, it's okay. If you'll just get honest along with me, I'll try to explain it. Okay? So let's go together. First of all, the word forget. In the Hebrew is the word shakah. Okay? It does not mean to have amnesia. It does not mean to get careless. It actually means to disregard or to no longer take something into account as serious. So Israel was turning, according to this passage, at an action, the state of being level. Israel was turning from what they knew in their heads was true, that God exists, that he's great to spend time with, that he can help out. And they're turning from that truth to something else. They were saying, in effect, look, maybe God exists. I'll give you that. But if he exists, he does not have much to do with my daily reality whatsoever. 
God for them, and maybe for you, present tense, past tense, whatever, maybe God felt to them like the theory of relativity, right? Yes, E equals MC squared. But even at 97.1% eclipse, can't seem to make that happen, right? But this idea of forgetting leads to a deeper question and another explanation issue for me. Why does forgetting the Lord lead to serving the Baals and the Asherah? What exactly are the Baals and the Asherah? Okay? And what do a stone Baal figurine and a wooden Asherah pole have to do with the digital age, honestly? How do they hold up to the internet? Does anything hold up to the internet? It's not rhetorical. The, the Baals and the Asherah are ancient Canaanite gods. Right? They are uh, really fertility deities. And that is the people of, in the land of modern-day Israel and Palestine <laughs> worshipped Baal and Asherah because they were supposed to control the weather patterns. They were supposed to control crop growth, right? Uh, together, Baal and Asherah were gods of the land, but they were also gods of life. There's a lot of depictions of them in ancient artwork of, of killing or battling the god of death. Okay, so that's kind of where they're at. And here's why that's important, because the Israelites' agriculture did not depend on irrigation. They didn't have nearby rivers to really work with. They depended completely on rainfall. Okay, so whether they ate and whether they lived depended entirely on whether it rained and how much it rained. So they could farm for all of the, all their worth, but they could only do so much if it didn't rain. Does that make sense? And so in an unsafe, insecure world, the Israelites turned to the Baals and the Asherah because they promised this transaction. It's a transaction that we all really want. If you give X, you'll always get Y. Right? If you pay something, in this case ritualized sex, little bloodletting, some food goodies, you'll always receive what you need and want. Plenty of rain and a controllable universe. Okay. This is the religion of what the Bible calls magic, sometimes, sorcery, or the religion of what the Bible sometimes calls idolatry. Okay. You bring something to the register, and the universe delivers a good or a service. Does that make sense? God goes from being this mysterious relationship to a transactional vending machine. Essentially, like we put the right amount of money with the right actions, the right keystrokes, and all of a sudden, you'll always, no matter what, get a Twix bar. No matter what. In other words, the Baals and the Asherah are promising a very attainable, a very dependable happiness. Look, maybe you're two weeks in. Or maybe you've been here for years. Who's counting? But I would guess this at some level resonates, right? Because happiness at Davidson can sometimes feel fragile uncontrollable, and uncertain. We can learn the rules. We can, we can work for all we're worth. We're good at that, okay? In the library, on the playing field, down the hill. But belonging still at the end of the day depends on other people's evaluations. It still depends on our professors, on our roommates, and on our friends, and on our coaches. And so we develop these strategies to give you're going to keep all the rules. You're going to be good. You're going to meet all the up-the-hill expectations. Okay? Or you're going to break all the rules. You're going to be authentic. 
you're going to find comfort in all the down the hill freedoms. Or you'll just go do both. Because you go to Davis. We are here. We'll be all things to all people. Work hard and play hard and have our cake. and eat it too. But small behaviors and small acts of service to get what we want when we want it can actually grow into something more. And something more and more demanding. A desire to let off some steam can become a drinking problem or a point addiction. Okay? Longing for a future job security can lead to workaholism. Wanting a certain body shape can become not eating. A woman once described her eating disorder as feeling drawn into walking into an ocean knowing full well that she was going well beyond her and then getting caught in the undertow. Feeling unable to stop eating less, exercising more, losing weight, feeling unable to start eating more, exercising less, putting on weight. I think if we're honest, no matter what we struggle with, we can relate to that. There's something in our lives that resonates with that. But verses 8 through 9 don't leave us there. They don't leave Israel there. These verses show us how God offers the surprising solution that we didn't expect. In order to illustrate this, I have to kind of tell a story or retell a story of a friend of mine telling a story. Okay? So I have a friend named Ricky Jones, and he tells a story about uh, calling a plumber, which sounds very ordinary. He's got a leak in the second floor, and the, the water's going from the second floor bathroom, and it's wreaking havoc on his first floor ceiling. So he calls a professional because he can't do much about it. And the plumber comes, shows up his tools, he's ready to go. Ricky Jones kind of gets a little bit curious. Ricky kind of follows him around, watches what he does, peers over his shoulder, uh, and watches the way that the plumber fixes the problem. And after watching the plumber for a while, Ricky said out loud, over the plumber's shoulder, this, I never would have thought to do it like that. To this, the plumber responded, that's because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Okay, that's because you don't know what you're doing. And Ricky thought to himself, that's fair enough. That's <laughs> fair enough. So in verse 8, God gives the Israelites over to the consequences of serving someone else's gods. Okay, They serve someone else, in this case, Kushat Mishat Naim of Naharim. Okay, a person whose name in translation literally means something like Kushan, the doubly wicked from the double rivers. That's what it kind of means in literally the Hebrew. He's kind of this legendary Jack the Ripper cruel king of a Mesopotamian superpower. That's sort of who that guy is. And we're told that God actually hands the Israelites over to him and to his superpowerness because in righteous anger, and this like heated love, tough love, in order to show the Israelites by external and physical slavery the internal and spiritual condition of their hearts. It's like how God, in his heated love, gives us over to the consequences of our strategies to avoid pain and get control in our lives sometimes. God lovingly moves us from casual use to addiction, from toying with food intake to a full-blown eating disorder. And like you, when I think about this, and I think about my life, and I think about verse 8, I want to say I would never have thought to fix it like that, <laughs> right? To God. To which God, I think, more than even a plumber, would be right to say, that's because, Sid, you don't know what you're doing. Okay? In other words, um, God is letting us know that we can't, and 
we don't know how to fix ourselves. As much as we think we do, we need outside help. And really, like, that's God's potential reply to our objections, at least the solution offered in verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up the deliverer, the people of Israel, for the people of Israel, who saved them, Athael, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So look, instead of trying harder, grabbing more tools, giving more time to do it yourself, we get to come to the end of ourselves. What a relief. We get to stop trying to bring something to God or to the situation in order to get a good or service that we need. We get to simply just cry out to God. It's like those beach safety posters, right? Have you seen this? Especially like, they're all over summer conference, sorry, but they're all over the kind of the air public beaches. Right? The way to get out of riptide, the way to get out of undertow, is not to swim as hard as you can against the tide. It's actually to let yourself float deeper in and deeper up into it, and then to float or swim to the side. Or better, you swallow your pride, you call out for help to the lifeguard. That would be my suggestion. You're taking surfing tips. Um, Look, commentator Ralph Davis has conducted this incredibly exhaustive study of this word that is for, for translated cried out in Hebrew. And he, and he said only one in six instances possibly suggest anything that has to do with repentance. So really, the Israelites are not crying out because they're sad about what they've done. They're crying out in distress. They're crying out in pain-induced anguish, not because they're sorry for ignoring God or treating him like a gumball machine. Okay? And this is actually such good news, because this means that God hears our pain. This means that God feels compassion for us, no matter where we are. He raises up a solution for us in our stuck-in distress. He gives us all of these things because of who he is. Because of who he is, he sends himself. He raises up a deliverer, literally a Yeshua, who rescues us from the undertow of our lives and our circumstances by God's spirit. Okay? Othniel is his deliverer. And Othniel is like this signpost that points to the future and says, look, I can't do it. I'm going to die. We're going to have peace for 40 years. I'm not eternal. I haven't conquered the grave. But there's a person coming whose name in the Hebrew is Yeshua, who is going to come and he is going to rescue us. His name is Jesus. Jesus, whose death and resurrection can actually give us peace and eternity and rest. Not just for 40 years, because again, he's conquered the grave and he's never going to die. So here's the thing. God has heard our cries. God has had compassion on us. He sent Jesus as a rescuer when most people 2,000 years ago were way too busy with their religious transactions. They were way too busy with their secular self-efforts to know this. Look, God's rescue through Jesus and through Othniel reminds me of a story that I heard this summer from a guy who was His name is Phil. Yeah, Phil. Phil was walking down a beach in North Carolina, busy with his own thoughts, working some stuff out, living in his head, when suddenly he looked up and he made this kind of awkward eye contact with a boy with Down syndrome who was like the age of a second grader. And the boy looked at Phil with this incredible affection and familiarity, 
and he gave him this beaming, bursting smile. He wildly screams with glee, and he runs towards Phil as fast as he can, with his arms are stretched out as wide as he can. And Phil describes, says, I was panicked. <laughs> he didn't know this boy, also this boy, he doesn't know, he's thinking like, this is against the law. <laughs> Wraps his arms around him as tightly as possible, holds on to him far too long, and begins to kiss him wildly on the lips. Days afterwards, Phil, after he gets out of the situation, cannot <laughs> stop shaking this thought, this awkward feeling of the counter, and suddenly it actually clicks for Phil. That moment on the beach was a picture of the awkward, sometimes panic-inducing love of God. The look of incredible familiarity and affection. The beaming, bursting smile. The wild scream of glee. The windmilling arms folding themselves into an overly long hug. The sloppy, wet kisses, yes, right on the lips. The way it happened to Phil when he was minding his own business, when he was caught up in himself. The feeling of a wild and reckless love from someone who it feels at once totally intimate and at the same time stranger. Like many of us, Phil is his own harshest, most judgmental critic. Yet what I love about that story is that God hears our inner monologue and interrupts it. Here's a human, he interrupts it in a way that you and I would never have thought of. By coming when we least expect him, with an almost sloppy wet So I really spent the majority of my time on one point, so I get that. And I did that because I wanted to know what it means to be loved as we are, because our second point how do we become better than we are? And so much on the first one. Okay? You see, many of us, most of the time, actually think Christian maturity, let alone Christian leadership like Othniel's, we think that Christian maturity means needing God's love less. We think holiness feels like self-sufficiency, right? We're getting more holy as we get more self-sufficient. We think we're going to say more and more to people around us, I got this. I'm good. But actually, holiness feels like a humble, I need help. Growing holiness actually says, hey, can we talk? Christian maturity, being more like Athel, depends on our feeling of our need for God more. Not seeing God as more and more unnecessary in our lives. And this perspective is, is in part because God chooses the least likely the run-of-the-mill, messed-up people like us to do his incredible worldwide cleanup efforts. I, look, it doesn't get much better in the book of Judges than up now. It's just going to go downhill fast. Just wait. Okay? But verse 9 tells us that Othniel is not even what we would expect from the paradigm of virtue for some sort of Israelite hero. Okay? First of all, he's a Kenizzite. He's not a homegrown Israelite at all. And he's old. Maybe you didn't catch this, but he's a contemporary of Caleb. He's a has-been from previous generation, previous wars, right? He isn't Sylvester Stallone, circa Rocky 1 or 2 or even 4. He's not Sylvester Stallone in the 1980s and 90s. If he's Sylvester Stallone, Othniel Sylvester Stallone, in Rocky Balboa or Creed, in the two, firmly in the 2000s, 
So I want you to imagine 60 to 70-year-old Stallone going against the ultimate mid villain. One commentator thinks that Israel was like this warm-up round for the battle between Kushan Rishalayim, Go and Egypt itself. He was going to take over the entire world. He already had a war machine that stretched over a thousand miles long from Babylon to Jerusalem. For at least eight years, he held that position. But God equips and empowers Atma of all people with his Holy Spirit to go out to war. And verse 10 tells us the Lord gave Kushan Rishtaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishtaim. If it wasn't clear from Othniel's age or the incredible might of Mesopotamia, verse 10 tells us how it is. The power comes from the Lord. Who's to say whose hand prevailed? The Lord's hand was working through and beside Othniel's hand. In this perspective, feeling our need for Jesus more, and by this power, that Jesus' spirit is at work. He is fighting for us. He's fighting with us, alongside us. That's how we change for the better. That's how we begin to address the problems that we see in the world. That's how we actually help other people from that humble posture. That's actually how we do sustainable good. Look, your professors and your parents have got this one covered. They're going to ask you all day and all night, especially your parents, what should I do with my, what should you do with your life? They're going to ask you that question. They want you to know, what should you do? God cares intimately about that question too, but He also cares intimately about how will you do what you do in your life. God is in the advent. How are you going to do what you do in your life? Will you choose a sometimes scary freedom? Are you going to take a risk? Are you going to trust? Will I ask for help? Who knows? Will I sometimes be honest enough to cry out? Will I rest and will I serve the deliverer Jesus who has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross? You see, Mrs. Harmon came to me to help me that morning in class, even when I was too embarrassed to ask for help. She came to me even when I struggled to trust her to help. And what lasted over the years for me is the memory of my time with her now. How she held my hand in hers, not how I did the quiz, or even whether I did the quiz at all. Look, I heard this is related, I promise. I remember the way that she would lather her lips with red lipstick, bright lipstick, sneak up to you when it was your birthday, lean in, smack your, your cheek, and she'd leave this indelible giant red mark that was from like your eyes, your chin. Yeah, it was real little. Except for me, it's probably just there. <laughs> um, but look, Mrs. Harmon taught me to read and to write and to multiply and all the things that a second grade learns. Uh, you should see my curse of R, by the way. But more than that, she taught me to fear failure less and to let another hand help. And that's what I want us to pick up. We're going to look at Judges, we're going to look at Ruth, and I want you to think. Davidson has a lot to offer. I have a lot to offer. But am I willing to ask for help? Am I willing to be Am I willing to let God as I am? Not as I wish I